My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. We are glad that you've joined us. Easter is normally the Sunday where we meet more guests than any other day of the year. And so if you're a guest with us, uh, thank you especially for being here. I hope you'll fill out a connection card maybe before you leave. Maybe you don't have a church home or, or you are just finding your way back to church. If you are new to the area or maybe you're new to exploring faith, whatever the circumstances are, the season of life that you're in. We're glad you've joined us this morning. I want to um, say hello to those who are in the lobby. Uh, we see you. We're glad you're here. You all don't know this, but we actually have the masters on out there. And so um, we're, they will let us know um, if John Rom starts to make a run or not. We'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> so, hey, um, this morning is great because of Easter. Next uh, Sunday morning will be great because of barbecue. And so uh, we're having a fellowship immediately after this second service next week. We'll provide the barbecue if you'll bring a side item or a dessert or something like that. Uh, it's free. Everybody's welcome to come, but it would help us to know how much pork to smoke if you would register. And so um, if you would do that, that would be awesome. Okay, um, we are in a year-long sermon series in 2023 called The Story. And in it, we are looking at the overarching story of the Bible from beginning to end, from uh, Genesis to Revelation. We started on January 1st. We will end on December 31st. Now, it's only just now April, so we're still pretty early on in the Bible. We're in the third book of the Old Testament. It's called Leviticus. And some of you might think, well, that seems like a problem because I know a little bit about my Bible. I'm pretty sure the resurrection's in the New Testament. How is this guy going to preach the Old Testament, much less Leviticus, on Easter? So I'll tell you that in between the services, I had three different people come up to me and say, I didn't know how you were going to get there, but you did. So don't, don't drift off halfway through. I promise you um, the resurrection is coming. But here's the thing. Jesus thought that everything in the Old Testament was about him. And when you read the New Testament writers, they're looking back on Jesus' ministry, and they thought the right way to interpret all of it was through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So as it turns out, you can't really understand either the Old Testament or the New Testament without understanding the resurrection of Jesus and its implications, which is why it, does, it isn't a problem for us to be in Leviticus even on Easter Sunday. Now... If you're a Christian, maybe you have a little bit of background in the Bible or in church, you might think of Leviticus as being a book uh, that's very, very bloody, and it is, that can be a little repetitive, and maybe you think that's not really all that relevant to me. If you are not a Christian yet, maybe you don't have much church background, or, or maybe you're even someone who would kind of self-identify as a skeptic, you might think of Leviticus as a what-about book. Because if you hear Christians talk or you see Christians post about maybe some type of moral imperative, um, some commands they say that are in the Bible, maybe it's on, 
um, sexual ethics or leadership roles in the church or the sanctity of life or whatever, if you hear or see that, a lot of times what follows very quickly behind are what about statements. Well, what about this? What about that? And, and almost always, not always, but a lot of times they come from Leviticus. And so people will say, well, what about that whole thing where you're supposed to stone adulterers to death? Well, what about that whole thing where you shouldn't wear clothing that has two different types of cloth in it, two different types of thread? Well, what about that whole shellfish thing? I mean, all you Christians seem to love shrimp and oyster roast, and so you're just kind of hypocrites. You pick and choose which biblical laws you want to follow and which ones that you don't. Well, I can just tell you that if you've ever thought some of those things, whether you're a Christian or not, I get it. I really do. And when it comes especially to the Old Testament book of Leviticus, I'll be honest with you, a lot of Christians don't really understand what to do with it. And because of that, we wind up misusing it. Sometimes just accidentally, but sometimes, just to be honest, to our shame, we misuse it intentionally to kind of drive an agenda. But the reality is that Leviticus is an incredibly helpful book, even for people like you and I who no longer live under its laws and regulations, which were originally given to Israel to help get her established and to help establish her life as a nation kind of between Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and when they would enter into the Promised Land. And the reason that it is so incredibly helpful, even to you and I, is because as it turns out, the struggles and problems and issues that we have are not all that different than the ones Israel was wrestling with 3,500 years ago. And the solution to them is not different either. So Leviticus actually speaks not just into our world and our situation and our life, not just placing our story firmly in the midst of God's story. Not only does it do that, but also, as it turns out, Leviticus is the key to understanding the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. And let me show you how it does that. First, Leviticus says that sin should lead to sacrifice. That sin should lead to sacrifice. The first seven chapters of the book are basically an instruction manual on how to do sacrifices. There are burnt offerings and grain offerings and guilt offerings and sin offerings and peace offerings. It just goes on and on. And there food and grain are offered up to God. Animals are slaughtered and sacrificed. There's oil and specific outfits and prayers and altars and rites and rituals. And it just, there's this drumbeat in the book of instruction and warning and, and conditions that establish over the course of the seven chapters a system of sacrifice in response to the sin of the people. That's the way the book begins. Now, to our modern ears and to our modern sensibilities, that can seem archaic. And sometimes, even if we're honest, it can seem offensive. But the underlying principle that sin should lead us to sacrifice, I think, is one that actually we all kind of understand and agree with, even if we just do so subconsciously. Because we all understand that if we've done something that has created stress or, or tension or distance in a relationship that we're in with someone, we need to take some intentional measure, we need to, to make some intentional sacrifice that acknowledges that something is wrong, 
and indicates our willingness to make it right again. We, we all just kind of do this reflexively. So guys, like, um, we're jerks in the morning. About lunchtime, Lord convicts us that we're jerks. Yes, and on the way home, we swing through Harris Teeter and pick up some flowers. Yes, you get into some kind of back and forth with your bestie over text, and then you decide, well, maybe I can take her out to coffee next week. Maybe you've had to put in a whole lot of hours at work over the last two or three weeks, and so you go to the kids, just baseball season just started, you go to the kids, you say, hey, I know I've had to work a lot, i tell you what we're going to do, we're going to go out to the River Dogs game on Saturday. Everybody understands this. Now, we don't think of it as sacrifice. And, you know, those things aren't sin necessarily. But the principle, we, we all resonate with this idea that sin should lead to sacrifice. And here's the thing. That's not a guilt-driven response. Right? It's not a guilt thing. It's a love thing. It's a respect thing. Because you don't take your neighbor's kids to the River Dogs game if you had to work a lot, right? You don't send your ex flowers if you were testy over text. Right? The sacrifices are made in relationships that you value for people that you love and respect. And that's what the sacrificial system in Leviticus is doing. It's codifying this idea that sin should lead us to sacrifice. And so the same is true for us. For those of us who are already Christian, and I know that not everybody here this morning is a Christian yet, but for those of us who are, when we carve out a few hours on Sunday morning to gather with God's people, that's a sacrifice of our time. When we regularly practice kingdom generosity, that's a sacrifice of our financial resources. When we humble ourselves in prayers of confession or prayers of petition. It's a sacrifice of our pride. When we serve, we're sacrificing our gifts and talents and perhaps even our passions for the sake of other people. When we sing robustly and without reserve, we're sacrificing our, the person next to us pleasure in hearing. And enjoy, right? You understand the point? Right? This is sin should lead us to sacrifice. And we know that. Every one of us would agree that we're not perfect. Right? We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We would acknowledge that. And so sacrifice is a good and proper response to knowing that we're imperfect, sinful people. Now, there's a problem that we run into, though. And this is what Leviticus teaches in chapters 8 through 15. The problem, second, is that sacrifice still leaves us separated. And so it's a good and proper response, but sacrifice still leaves us separated. You get, if you were to go back and read through the book this week, you get these seven chapters of regulations about sacrifice, but the people of Israel still cannot go into the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt. They still can't go in. Instead, what God does is he commands Moses to appoint and to consecrate, to set aside Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. And what he says is that the priests will be representatives of the people and they can enter into the place where the presence of God dwells inside the tabernacle. Leviticus 8, 12 and 13 says this, Moses poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head. 
and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waist and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. But even they, even these consecrated set-aside priests, even they had to follow a very strict set of rules and regulations on when and how and for what purpose they could go into the presence of God on behalf of the people. It's very strict. And there are consequences if they, for, for reasons outside, when, how, and for what purpose God had said they could go in. If, if they try to do things their own way, here's what happens. Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. In other words, they offered a sacrifice to God that was outside of the way God said to do it. Verse 2, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The sacrifices of the people, the consecration and the work of the priests were good and proper responses to sin but they still weren't enough. God's standard was perfection, holiness, and anything less than that was unacceptable. In fact, the Bible is quite clear that anything less than absolute perfection and holiness merits death. So sin leads us to sacrifice. That's our acknowledgement to God that there is a problem, something is wrong, and we want it to be rectified. But that in and of itself still leaves us separated from God. Now, I think, and I wonder if you would agree, that that kind of makes sense to me. Like, doesn't it make sense to you that God doesn't forgive people based on church attendance or how much they give or how many hours they volunteer in kids ministry? Like, doesn't it make sense to you that God's line for what is and is not okay hasn't moved over time? Doesn't it make sense to you that God's willingness to allow people to be in his presence for all of eternity forever isn't some Like his stand for that is not some volatile, capricious, cross your fingers and hope that you make it and you'll be okay kind of standard that may or may not, by coincidence, align with the time and culture into which you were born. Doesn't that make sense? Like I can remember, for example, being in India and there's altars just everywhere in that country and so many of them have things like fruit and candy bars on them. And I can remember being grieved by that and thinking, like, what kind of God is appeased by chocolate? Like, I don't, I don't want to believe in a God who could be bargained with with a Cadbury bar. Like, God forgiving sin because someone made him a good offer, that doesn't sound like justice to me. That doesn't sound like holiness to me. So yes, 
our sacrifices of time, money, talents, influence, prayers, whatever it may be. They're our acknowledgement to God that we recognize that there's a problem, but they still leave us separated. And not only do we know that, I think, I think intellectually and in our hearts, we, we, that makes sense to us, that feels kind of right to us, but also that's what Leviticus teaches us. It still leaves us separated. You get to chapter 16, which is just the heart of the book, and it teaches Israel and it teaches you and I, if we have ears to hear, that this separation that still exists between us and God, it shows us our need third for atonement. It shows us our need for atonement. Atonement is just kind of a fancy theological word that means at one moment. It's the construction of it, at one moment. It is reconciliation between people who have some separate. It's the opposite of separation. To be atoned is to be reconciled. And friends, what people like you and me, people who have been separated from God because of our sin, what we most need is to be at one with him again. We need atonement. We need to live in the fullness of joy and peace and flourishing that he created us to experience. We need to live without the fear that comes from being sinned against or from having our own sin found out. We need to love without the pain of loss, to work without the curse of toil, to believe without doubt, to worship without reservation. But in my experience, like that is not the world we live in. So very often, our actual experience in this world falls short of that. We are a broken, sinful people who live in a broken, sinful world. And we deal with the consequences of that sin, with the consequences of that brokenness every single day. What we need is atonement. We need to be at one with God and his purposes for us again. And so the mechanism in Leviticus 16 by which God enabled Israel to get a brief glimpse of that, it went something like this. Once a year and only once a year, the high priest and only the high priest would go into the most holy place, into the very place where the presence of God dwelled. He went there as a representative of the people and he bore with him the blood of a bull to make atonement for himself and the blood of a goat to make atonement for the people. And in addition, on this one day, it actually was the day in the life of Israel. They called it the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Also on this day, he would go outside the tabernacle, and he would place his hands on the head of a second goat. And he would confess the sins of Israel onto it. And then they would let the goat go. They would let it escape. They call it a scapegoat. And that goat would flee off into the wilderness, symbolically showing the total removal of sin from the camp of Israel. This is what's happening in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in Leviticus 16, in the life of the nation of Israel. Chapter 16, verses 32 to 34 say this. The priest who's anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. 
He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sin. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This atoning sacrifice had to be made once a year, every year, forever. Because even the God-given, blood-soaked, carefully scripted, high priest atonement was insufficient. The sin of the people, like your sin and mine, created a separation from God that was insurmountable. Because even the greatest atoning sacrifice, done exactly the way that God said it should be done, even that was insufficient. Hebrews 10, 1-4 say it this way, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that, my friends, is why Easter matters so much. Because the resurrection of Jesus fulfills every promise made in the sacrificial system and overcomes all of its insufficiencies. Because Jesus never sinned. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law, of perfect submission to God's will, and yet, according to Hebrews, or not and yet, and according to Hebrews 7.26, he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This is who Jesus is, perfect and without sin. And yet, Ephesians 5.2 tells us that on the cross, Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He offered himself up, which means, in other words, that he was not only the sacrifice, but the high priest who offered it. You with me? Hebrews 2.17 says he became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He took away all of the wrath of God. He paid the fullness of the price that God required for the sins of the people. The New Testament never uses the word atonement. It uses the word propitiation because the work of Jesus is greater. It didn't have to be done again. It was finished Hebrews 3.1 implores us to remember Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Twelve times in 13 chapters, the New Testament book of Hebrews calls Jesus our great high priest. And serving in that role, Hebrews again tells us in 9.24 that Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, 
Not into a temple, not into a tabernacle in the desert. Those things are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so on this side of the cross, the apostles would look back on the temple and the tabernacle and they would understand, oh, that was a model. That was a copy. That was a shadow of a greater reality. So that on Good Friday on Golgotha's hill, outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus would be slaughtered as an atoning sacrifice, not for his own sin because he had none, but for the sins of the world. And right up until that point, the work of Jesus pretty much tracks right along with the work of the priesthood in the temple and the tabernacle before it. But then Sunday comes, and with it, the resurrection, and everything changes. Because the resurrection of Jesus proves that his sacrifice and his high priestly work and his atonement for sin was and is radically different than what had been happening for 1,500 years with Israel. The resurrection is our evidence that his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy all of God's demands. It was sufficient to make way for us to be at one with God again. Hebrews again interprets Leviticus for us in chapter 9. It says that the resurrection gives us assurance that unlike those earthly priests, Jesus did not have to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest who entered the holy places every year with blood not his own, the blood of bulls and goats. For then, if that were the case, the writer of Hebrews argues, then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Why is it that we don't have to sacrifice him and crucify him again and again and again and again and again every single year on the Day of Atonement? As it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10, 12 says, When he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know who sits down? People who are done working. That's it. There's nothing left to do. It's time to sit down and rest in the fullness of the work that has been done. Every single year, again and again and again, the high priest would have to atone for the sins of the people all over again. Every single year, the blood of those sacrifices would have to be used on the Day of Atonement in the most holy place. And then the bodies of those slaughtered animals would be taken outside of the camp of Israel and they would be burned, they would be consumed. So too Jesus is sacrificed on a cross outside the camp, outside the walls of Jerusalem. But he was not consumed. The resurrection shows that the greatest reality of Easter is not so much the miracle of the resurrection. As miraculous as that is, there are other people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament who were resurrected. The greatest reality of the resurrection is the sufficiency of the sacrifice. 
It completely fulfills the system of atonement. That had never been done. That's unique in the history of God's interaction with his people. It's finished. There are no more sacrifices that have to be altered. We can once again be at one with God. And that is why you and I can have hope. That is why you and I can rejoice today. No matter what your week has brought, no matter what kind of year you're having, no matter what season of life you're in, if you are way up on a mountaintop or way down in a valley because atonement, at one with God changes everything. I can't tell you how much Satan tried to rob me of my joy this week. Y'all, y'all, I'm telling you, I had an avalanche of discouragement and lies and self-doubt and distractions this week. Some of it was my own fault. Some of it was just the fault of living in a broken world. But some of it, some of it is spiritual warfare. And so every single day this week, I've had to put on the belt of truth that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And I've had to pick up a shield of faith that says the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells now also in me. And every single day this week, I've had to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If the resurrection is true, then my week has to be different. If the resurrection... So look, the resurrection is not intended to be like... Uh, an interesting intellectual reflection on history. It is that. I'll nerd out on that. The resurrection is intended to change you. It changes everything. It changes how we live. It changes how we respond to grief and stress and discouragement. It redefines the source of our greatest joy. It redirects the object of our greatest affections. If you are a Christian, if you're someone who has come to the place where you have received the fullness of what Jesus accomplished in the atonement, you have been made at one again with God because by his grace you have turned from sin and turned towards Jesus, placing your faith in him, then, and this is the last thing in your notes, then the atonement should lead lead you to live differently. The, the, The atonement makes us different. It changes our life. This is what the last 11 chapters of the book of Leviticus are about, 17 through 27. They're called the holiness codes. And it's just 11 chapters basically saying, now, live like this as people who've been atoned for. Live like this in response to what's happening in the most holy place where the high priest makes a sacrifice of blood to atone for your sins. Go live differently. Go live distinctly. Friends, how much more should you and I live differently as a people who understand not the model, not the copy or the shadow of these things, but their reality? If you're not a Christian yet, we're so glad you're here. I hope maybe you'll keep coming back. It's it's a great time to jump into what God's doing at King's Cross. If you're not a Christian yet, I'd love to give you an opportunity to receive the forgiveness that God has so freely offered through the work of his son. Scripture promises that if you will acknowledge your sin, sacrifice your pride, 
humble yourself before God and just say, would you forgive me? Not based on my work or my generosity or how kind I am or the scales of my good, not based on those things, based on what Jesus did for me on the cross and his atoning work alone. He has done everything necessary for my salvation. Would you forgive me? Scripture says he is faithful and just to do so. If you are already a Christian, perhaps some of you need to renew your commitment to live in light of these things. Maybe you need to reaffirm to God, I I have believed this, but I recognize that I've not been living like this. And much like Israel, my sin continues even though the atonement is done. And Father, I want to reaffirm to you my commitment to live differently in light of what Jesus has done for me. I'm going to pray, and no matter where you are on that spectrum or somewhere in between, would you respond as I pray and as the Spirit leads you? Let's pray. Father, for many of us, we here, we grasp at straws to understand some of these things that we read in the Old Testament. But oh, what a light Jesus' life and death and resurrection shed on it for us where we understand the glory and the fullness of these things. And we rejoice at the miracle that Christ laid his life down and he took it up again. But we rejoice even more so in knowing that no other sacrifice would ever need to be made. That when Jesus died on a cross, all of our sins were in the future. That you knew them all. And you made a way for us to be at one with you. If there are those who are here who have not yet stepped into the fullness of reconciliation with you, would you grant them, Father, by the power of your Spirit, grace to believe that even now they might cry out to you and be at one with you again. For those of us who have done that, would you grant us the grace to live like it? Would you help us to be a church that is distinct from but loves on its community? A a place where the gospel is boldly preached but also lived out. We might love our neighbors as ourselves, and we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because we know that these things are true. They are for us. We are so thankful. Would you make it so, not for our sake, but for yours? In your name we pray. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.